they get it. They're on board. They don't want to lose primary care because they know what that means in terms of their ability to, to get their employees into a, a high-functioning healthcare system. Welcome to the ACO Show. This is Joe Schunkweiler. I lead adoption and training at Allidade. And I'm very pleased today to have a, a little different take on the ACO show. So we actually turn the reins of the show over to two guests who are going to have their own discussion about some critical issues in primary care, value-based care, and the current crisis that is facing the country with the COVID-19 epidemic. Um, one of them needs no introduction to the listeners of the show, Dr. Farzad Mostashari, CEO of Allidade and former director of the Office of National Coordinator for Health IT, and Tom Banning. Tom is the CEO of the Texas Academy of Family Physicians. They have a great discussion, and I think you'll enjoy it. Thanks so much, Joe. Uh, Tom, thank you so much for uh, coming on to our, our podcast. Uh, maybe we can start off by telling... Uh, our audience a little bit about how you came to your current role. Well, thank you so much for uh, for having me on and looking forward to our conversation. Um, you know, my background uh, was really in, in journalism and politics. Uh, so jumping into healthcare uh, was, a, a, you know, quite a learning experience. Um, uh, but uh, you know, I've been with the uh, Texas Academy for a little over 20 years um, as both their Director of uh, Governmental Advocacy, and uh, and and for the last, uh, I could believe it's 13 years, their their CEO. So uh, we're still very big into um, you know both public and private advocacy, and in uh, in education, and, and really trying to help our members uh, thrive uh, and and be successful in practice and and, and their ability to care for patients. Uh, I, I think you and we share a sense of caring for those who care, service to, you really couldn't ask for a, a better a better group of individuals to represent. Uh, I, I know that we, our company feels really honored to have such wonderful um, people to, to be able to put ourselves in service of, and, and I'm sure it feels the same way for, for the staff at, at the Academy. You know, I, um, uh, my parents often ask me, you know, what I, what it is that I actually do. Um, <laughs> and, and really the, the only thing I can tell them is, is, you know, I get to wake up every day, look in the mirror and know that I'm doing something right for, you know, an amazing group of, of, of individuals and, and physicians. Uh, you know, I, I've been very blessed, um, to, to, uh, you know, work with the type of leaders the forward-thinking um, doctors, uh, you know, who really care about um, their patients, the healthcare system, uh, both you know clinically and you know from a financial uh, standpoint, uh, you know, they really yeah. adhere to the Hippocratic oath uh, of do no harm, and and that also means to to their patients' pocketbooks. Yeah, you know, one of the the sad ironies of this current situation that we're in with the coronavirus outbreak is that these physicians and these practices to do the right thing for their patients told them to stay away, told them, stay home, call us, don't come in, uh, particularly for the vulnerable and elderly patients. And under the current way in which they get paid, they're literally telling patients, don't come in. And that means that they're not making enough to keep the, the business open over the long run. Tell me about how this is 
how you're seeing this and what are you hearing from the the physicians on the front lines of this? Yeah, it's been devastating. Um, you know, for the last eight weeks, um, our members have seen uh, patient volume drop off by 50 to 70 percent. Uh, that doesn't mean that they close their doors uh, because, as you mentioned, you know, they're doing outreach to patients. They have pivoted in a major way from, to, to a virtual uh, platform to care for patients. They're utilizing uh, staff to do um, care management and, and chronic care visits. But a lot of the things that, that they're doing, uh, a CPT code doesn't exist um, yeah. and, and they're not able to bill for it. Uh, so what I think the, the COVID-19 crisis has, has clearly shown us um, is that just how broken uh, or misaligned fee-for-service is for primary care services. Uh, so we've put a lot of effort into really raising um, the alarms and um, uh, highlighting you know, what this crisis has done to um, just the, the practice viability of a significant and critical component of our, of our healthcare workforce. Uh, and it's, and it's not exactly going, right. and it's not going, going away anytime soon. Yeah. Uh, what do you think the, you know, from, from, from your lips to their ears, hopefully, what, what do you think Congress and the administration should be doing right now? Oh boy, that's, there's, <laughs> there's so many uh, things that they could be doing and that they should be doing that they are not doing. Um, you know, one is they have found ways to um, support or prop up different industries, whether that yep. is the um, airline industry, whether that is the uh, hospital industry, um, uh, you know, and to an extent, small business. Um, but there's not really been a significant or really any focus on uh, primary care physicians. Uh, and as you know, sort of the foundation of our healthcare system or the entryway into our healthcare system. We cannot afford to lose those doctors. Um, you know, I was on a, on, I was on a call, Tom, with a group of healthcare policy people, including uh, a, a lead staffer on the Hill. And she said, everyone has their handout. And I just, my, my, my blood pressure <laughs> just went through the roof. And, and it was all I could do to restrain myself from saying, like, this is different. This isn't like primary care isn't like everybody else. Primary care needs to be treated as a special. And we're not treating primary care as special right now. Can, can you help me make the case, Tom? Why is primary care special? Why, why should we care more about primary care than we do the restaurants who have their hands out? And Look, other specialists, ophthalmologists, revenue is down a lot. Why should we care about, why should we take care of, why should we focus on these independent primary care practices differently? Yeah, so I don't want to minimize the pain that everybody's dealing with. Um, you know, my wife and I eat out way more than we should and have, you know, friends that own restaurants. So, I mean, everybody's hurting, but um, primary care is different because, um, you know, they're the entryway into our healthcare system. Um, they're the ones that are not only testing and screening for COVID, but they're managing chronic disease patients. 
um, they're still doing all of the acute visits for problems that, guess what, have not gone away because of COVID. Uh, largely, uh, they're dealing with a lot of mental health issues right now because of this, this pandemic. Um, so they are different. And if they go away, if the, 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 the system crumbles or, um, uh, or, or, or fails, uh, then patients are going to be uh, forced to, to get care at the emergency room, which is the last place last anybody place anybody should be going ever um but certainly in the times of a pandemic yeah there is um there's a a bipartisan letter to congress signed by by a lot of people including me um advocating for for funding to help um basically help us reopen the economy safely and one of the things that you need to do is public health needs to be able to identify all the positive cases and test them and then get their contacts into into testing and, and quarantine. That is just if we want to if we want to recover our economy better than than trillions of dollars of stimulus is control of the outbreak, right? Fundamentally, this is not we don't we're not we don't have an economic problem in this country. We have an outbreak problem. Yeah. And the message that I think we have not yet gotten through to people is that if you want to control the outbreak, you need primary care. That's the key. And primary care has got to be supported given, given ways of protecting themselves with masks, but also protecting themselves financially so they can be the ones that do the testing, do the treatment, do the care. So that people don't have to go to the emergency room, so that the fans of the outbreak don't continue to be, uh, to the, the flames don't continue to be flan, uh, fanned. Yeah. So I don't think I don't think people get that yet, but they will. Two three weeks from now, people are going to say, "Oh, we're we're not able to get do the testing we need to do." <laughs> well, these primary care practices, uh, you know, close their doors or they don't have equipment or or they've been exposed and now they're in quarantine. Oh, how did this happen? And, you know, it'll be sad comfort to you uh, to be able to say, well, I, I told you so. Yeah, the, 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 one of the most frustrating things about the situation we find ourselves in is that it was totally, um, it, it shouldn't have surprised anybody. I mean, we've yeah. been warning for 20 years about the fragility of uh, our primary care infrastructure. Uh, and, you know, unfortunately, it took a pandemic to really yeah. express that in ways that, that people, um, you know, can understand and feel. And unfortunately, you know, our policymakers in D.C. have, have not gotten the message yet. Um, and if they don't, then, then you're absolutely right. They're going to find out the hard way. Uh, and, and the thing that concerns me is, you know, if we lose the workforce that we have, which is already, you know, under uh, undersourced, um, uh, and the and the numbers, you know, don't match up with specialists, uh, I'm not sure how many of them are going to come back, yeah, um, or, yeah. Or, or or be able to. Well, I mean, I think there's lots of different ways in which they could not come back. We could lose them to retirement. We could lose them to employment. Um, we could lose them to private equity. Uh, there's lots of ways in which, you know, as, as there was one article uh, in the New York Times about the problem and the closing line was the vultures are circling. Uh, 
I, and, I've, got a, I've got a friend that works in venture capital and does healthcare, and he told me we've got a billion dollars sitting on the sideline waiting, waiting for our buying opportunity. So I, yeah. I know for a fact that that is absolutely the strategy. And, and I think that the insurers are, are likely uh, in that, that same position, which is why we've seen such little movement or effort or interest from um, those that employers are contracting with to provide a network and provide services uh, who have been uh, completely absent in any conversation of leadership on this. Yeah, I actually my, my hope is now, now here's where here's where the optimist in me comes out. My hope is that actually health plans are going to be in a position to uh, to see what's heading this way and to help uh, stave it off. And, you know, maybe I'm maybe I'm being too optimistic, but if you just think about it from their perspective, the, they're going to have some extra cash this year uh, because of all the reduction in, you know, the hospitals are saying uh, the elective surgeries have, have, have gone down so much that their finances are in trouble and they're getting hundreds of billions of dollars of bailout. Well, who does that help? That's helping the health plan. So the health plans are going to have, they're going to have a lot of money, I think, unspent. And I think what they're going to look at is, gosh, we want these practices to stay independent and not be rolled up by private equity or become part of an integrated delivery system, which then puts us over a barrel and, and charges monopoly pricing on us. And the good news is, this is the, this is the thing. Like, it's pretty cheap to save primary care because, yeah. <laughs> because we're, we're only 5 6% of the total pie. So, you know, we, we, did, some, we did some math. Um, and, and if you just gave every primary care doc just one visit, one office visit's worth for every patient that's attributed to them, if you just gave 200 bucks for staying open, for keeping access open, for doing phone calls, for just give them 200 bucks one time, uh, that would be that would be enough. That would be you know ten billion dollars. You throw in Medicaid for OBGYNs and pediatrics. Now you're up to fifteen billion dollars. Fifteen billion dollars. That's less than one percent of the two trillion dollar stimulus bill that passed, which it wasn't even you know we're not even done yet with that. And you could save primary care for the next X number of months. Yeah, or or we could be even more aspirational and and move to a prospective payment away from fee for service. Yeah. Um, and, talk, to me, I, talk to me about that. How would that work? Well, you know, I don't think that it's an either or, um, yeah. you know, and I don't think that there is going to be a, you know, a right model for, for everybody. Um, uh, you know, I think that you could look at, you know, something similar to what direct primary care does is a monthly mm -hmm. or a, a subscription fee for primary care services. And, and, you know, those, Prices could be risk adjusted based on age or um, uh, severity of, of, of health. Yeah. Um, you could, you know, I mean, in a, in a very simple manner, you could look at what the practice billed in fee for service the previous year, uh, divide it by 12 and, you know, make that a, a monthly capitated payment. I mean, it, yeah. you've already budgeted for it. Um, you know, it's kind of a... Um, uh, a, a known cost to you. So that shouldn't be that hard. Um, uh, or you can just take primary care out of the insurance stack uh, and and pay it directly. I mean, if you're an employer or if you're mm -hmm. Medicare or you're Medicaid and, and come up with a, 
a definable uh, set of services that would be included in that that primary care uh, uh, service uh, and just pay it directly. I mean, it, it's really not primary care is really not an insurable uh, event. You know, yeah. it, it's based I mean, on relationships. And yeah. And and I think there's I, I, I really like that idea. And I think that it so much of the work that we do with practices around population health, we have to try to fit a, you know, a, a, a round peg in a square hole of trying to say, well, OK, and what can you get paid for? Well, let's let's do let's do this thing because we can get paid for that code. But, oh, you don't you, you can't get paid for that phone call. You can't get paid for that group visit, you can't get paid for the televisit. Oh, well, then then I guess we can't do that. And I think your point is that if we really want to get better healthcare for lower cost, lower total cost, giving primary care the flexibility to say, look, here's 50 bucks a month. You deal with the patient's primary care issues. And then at the end of the year, we can still be accountable for total cost of care and total quality, right? And if you're, if you're great at what you do and you create superior outcomes for the patients and keep them out of the hospital, well, here's, some, here, here's a piece of that money that you earned, right, by doing that. And to me, it's the combination of a stable base of per patient funding plus the opportunity to capture the sum of the value that that really great primary care docs create by keeping patients healthy and out of the hospital. I think well, to me, it's the, the it's marrying those two together gives you the upside as well as the base. Well, and there's there's an additional uh, added benefit, and that is you remove all of the administrative crap that doctors are are going nuts. Hallelujah. So, you know, I mean, you, 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 you unburden them from a system that, you know, is not valuing what they do um, and is throwing just check boxes that's driving burnout and and fatigue. Um, So, I mean, there's a huge upside for the, for the physicians, not only from a financial standpoint uh, and, and giving them more time to, to be with their patient and use their professional clinical discretion in terms of what they need and what t- touch points they, they need to have. But it also yeah. gets rid of all that, that um, paperwork. Yeah. yeah. You know, one of the challenges is, you know, we were excited about the primary care first uh, program. I, I now don't know what's going to happen with that program. that was supposed to roll out to certain geographies uh, beginning January. I, I hope that it, it continues. In fact, I think the, AFP is nationally is hoping to expand that the geographies of that, but I, I worry about them being so distracted and overwhelmed at CMS. But um, one of the, the the challenges with that one was that it actually didn't reduce the administrative burden because the practices are only doing it for a small number of their patients. They still have to maintain their whole billing infrastructure for all the other payers, and you still have to submit zero dollar claims. So, yeah. so I think sometimes the dream of that reduction, the, that elimination, I should say, of the administrative burden isn't going to be realized unless we actually get all the payers to hold hands and, and jump in. Are you seeing any movement on that on the part of the payers in Texas? No. Um, I, I wish I could say that I was. Um, you know, we've been in some pretty deep discussions 
recently about uh, looking at an 1135 waiver, uh, which would which would allow for multi-payer um, uh, pilots, as you described. So you could align Medicare, you could align Medicaid. Let's say you pick off a, a local government uh, or county government and, and one or two employers in a, in a market. Um, you know, it's a it's a heavy lift, but um, the flexibility that that has been provided in those waivers is, is something that we're definitely exploring. Uh, we've had multiple conversations with um, large self-insured employers. We had a call earlier this week with the um, National Healthcare Purchasers Alliance that represents, I think, 43 million covered lives. Um, mm-hmm. And and you know they're they get it. They're on board. They don't want to lose primary care because they know what that means in terms of their ability to, to get their employees into a, a high functioning healthcare system. Um, but you know the, the feedback we've gotten from the large insurers in, in, in Texas uh, is that they're really not doing insurance anymore. They're, they're uh, acting as TPAs or ASOs and just man- managing um, self-insured uh, employers' claims payments. Yeah, um, and I... Yeah, I I do think that it's time for employers to step up in terms of what they ask of those TPAs. And we we have actually some great relationships at Allidade with with many payers, national payers, and and they're they're actually being quite helpful. As we we have we just now, as you know, Tom, we're entering into Texas. We have 22 practices in Texas that we're we're working with, and some of those the the most um, uh, enthusiastic supporters of 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 us coming in have been those uh, payers for their self insured lives, for their Medicaid managed care lives, for their Medicare Advantage lives. Uh, but I I do agree that that with the self insured, the incentives aren't aren't aligned enough for them. And it would be great if the employer stepped up and said, if it's good for MA and if it's good for 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 your self insured line of business, well, it's good enough for us too. Yeah. And, you know, I, I think that there is a duty and, and some of my members, you know, I've been saying this for 10 years and some of my members don't like the fact that I say it. But, you know, there is a duty on uh, the physicians to, to think differently about how they're aligned, uh, the services that yeah. they're providing. And, and things are going to need to change and they're, we're going to need to step up our game. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. you know, groups like uh, Allidate or Catalyst or Village or, or, or others that have you know, those um, population health capabilities, the ability to aggregate information and, and data that's meaningful and helpful to practices um, yeah. you know, is, is going to be required going forward. And, you know, I think that, you know, kind of looking uh, uh, over the, the horizon or once we get through this pandemic, um, you know, the way in which care is um, organized uh, and delivered and paid for is going to be much differently and, and there is going to be much different uh, in yeah. the capabilities that those practices are going to need in order to succeed in that world. Um, uh, they're going to have to find groups to uh, align with, to partner with, um, you know, the, the, the person that goes out and, you know, opens up a, 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 a single practice you know, unless you're doing cash, I just don't think that it's going to yeah. be a be a workable well, solution. I, I mean, I think, you know, one of the things, other lessons that came out here was around just the fragility of, of those independent practices, even something as simple as the supply chain, right? Like, you know, and I know that the supply chain 
for those practices has completely broken down because they're too small to get attention. And, and like we, we had Alidate with, with these new practices we just signed up. We, we had to go and find them 8,000 surgical masks and N95 masks and shipments of hand sanitizers because their regular suppliers just was, were, were neglecting them, frankly. They were in the lowest priority. Um, yeah. And I think there's something to this idea of strength in numbers without giving up your independence. That's, you're exactly right. You're exactly correct. Now, one of the things that I do hear from these fiercely independent physicians and practices is I'm better and I should be able to make more money if I'm better than other people. And I love that. I love that spirit of entrepreneurialism and, and kind of aggressiveness on and pride. And, and when I was talking to one of our, one of our docs uh, in West Virginia about capitation, primary care capitation, uh, they said, look, I'm, I'm really efficient. I can do a lot of visits in a day and under fee for service, being able to bill for every visit, I make I make more money than someone who's not as efficient as I am, and and I should be able to be paid more for that. And I wonder, Tom, if if we can switch that pride from pride in being able to be really efficient at a at a at a short visit to pride in being able to be really effective at keeping people out of the hospital and. And, and that relationship, that longitudinal aspect of it. Because if you can channel that same entrepreneurialism into, gosh, can I keep one out of 10 hospitalizations out? Why, why those docs could make twice as much money in value-based programs and Medicare Advantage than they ever could on, you know, churning in, you know, shorter and shorter visits. Yeah. Um, you know, I probably shouldn't say this, but I, I will. You know, we, we, we've asked, I mean, I've asked a room full of 500 doctors, how many of you think, you know, you provide high quality care and every single hand goes up. Yeah. And that's a, that's a statistical impossibility, right? Yeah. I mean, um, you know, in, in, unless you're, you know, you know, kind of following your quality metrics, which, you know, at the time, a lot aren't more are. Um, uh, but you're right. I mean, it, it, we shouldn't be in the fee for service mentality where we're just churning patients. You know, we need to be uh, thinking fundamentally differently about um, the way in which we're providing care, utilizing, um, you know, non-physician support services to, 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 to touch them at, at, at places that um, or meet the patient where they want to be met. Yeah. yeah. I mean, the other the other part of this is I think every independent physician can be above average sure. if they if they have the right uh, contract and the right tools and the right support because they're competing against, pardon me, you know, kind of fat and slow <laughs> health system. And if you're if you change the structure, if you change the game. Right. In, in a fee for service game, the bigger you are, okay, maybe not fat, but big. <laughs> and, and, and you have more marketing and leverage, market leverage over the insurers. So you can charge higher prices. And the independents are the ones who are losers in that game 
But if you're now flip the, the script and now you're talking about value, all of that armor from the health system provided care becomes a liability for them. And it's the independence that can really kind of crush it and, and win again and again and again. And, and that's what we've seen in the ACO world, right? Where essentially all of the gains of the ACO program has come from physician-led ACOs and hospital-led ACOs. Have, you know, there's been, there have been exceptions here and there, but by and large, hospital-led ACOs have not saved money. Yeah, I think I think you and I are singing from the same hymnal. There's a, a great group of uh, ten independent primary family doctors down in the Rio Grande Valley. You know, oh, yeah. a really difficult um, you know, population to manage. Um, you know, after their first year of just getting their uh, MSSP data, they saved over ten million dollars the following year by you know leveraging that information, providing better care management support, looking at referral management, and you know I don't want to say these guys were cowboys, but you know they they just took it and ran with it and crushed they, it. Um, they went after it. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So it's yeah. it's you're you're right. It's uh, it is absolutely not only possible but it's happening. Well, we hope to be a big part of, of it happening more and more uh, in the Lone Star State. And we, we hope to uh, be able to, to partner with you and, and your membership in making sure that primary care and family practice can not only survive this, but, but actually thrive in the years to come. Well, thank you. And, you know, the, the nice thing about Texas is it's a, a very collaborative state. We've got incredible physician leadership. So bringing Allidate into the fold with, you know, our physician leaders where we're, you know, all driving in the same direction and are aligned around better, better health care, better outcomes, um, uh, you know, better, better care services is, is something we're all, we're, we're all striving for. Thank you so much, Tom. Tom Banning, CEO of the Texas Academy of Family Physicians, and Farzad Mostashari, CEO of Allidate. Thanks, everybody.